Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly, also a senior fellow at AI. We're all senior and fellows on this bus. Julia, <laughs> Julia Joja, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that emerge along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today we'll be talking to Giselle, and we'll be talking primarily about a subject that's very much in the news, namely uh, the Russian military buildup um, on the Ukrainian border, the prospect of a possible attack or escalation of an ongoing attack that's been going on since 2014 against Ukraine, and about what that means for for the alliance and for the wider security in the region. So let's just sort of zoom in on the on the on the military picture. What does the situation on the ground looks like right now? Well, even if uh, the invasion has begun by the time uh, the podcast airs, um I do think it's worth stepping back and trying to put the situation in some context. The press has been full of uh, panic stories over the last uh, several weeks and, and months. Yeah, you can't swing a cat here without uh, hitting a map that has a hundred red arrows pointed <laughs> at Kiev from every direction on the compass. Uh, it's also sort of like being back in 1943 and Marshal Zhukov is leading the Red Army uh, westward. And I, I'm not trying to make light of uh, the threat or or the prospect, but trying to to keep our heads on when we're thinking about what the Russians might do is probably worth a few minutes to do, to discuss. Um, first of all, the, the nightmare scenario would really require the Russians to put all their chips on the middle of the table. What's the nightmare scenario, taking Kiev? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, there are... Uh, our colleague uh, Fred Kagan... Uh, Uh, American Enterprise Institute and uh, uh, his colleagues and his wife at the, the Critical Threats Project have done a really good job of sort of uh, slicing and dicing the Russian options. Uh, so I would commend people to to try to look up some of their their work. The, the Russians do have many options, uh, but uh, so much of the focus has been on the nightmare scenario. Uh, you know, even President Biden has said. Uh, You know, oh my God, Kiev could fall in 10 minutes. Uh, I exaggerate, but only slightly. Um, and first of all, I don't think that's either in the cards or even possible. Uh, the Russian military um, has improved itself a lot since the end of the Cold War, but it's not like they've done an across-the-board revitalization. There are things that they've concentrated on and things that they only have very limited uh, high-quality units uh, to do. So again, if if our image is the Red Army storming toward Berlin, uh, I think that's a profound misunderstanding. The Russians have wanted to be a global great power, and as uh, Vladimir Putin has said, he laments the end of the Soviet Union as a Uh, the worst tragedy of the 20th century or whatever exactly the quote was. So the Russians have been trying to to refurbish their great power status in the way that the Russians have always done. The Russians like 
big bombs that like to blow things up, and they like artillery <laughs> and things like that. So that's what they've spent their their money on. Yeah. This is a real threat. That they could attack Kiev with uh, rockets and missiles uh, in ten minutes if they so uh, cared to. But that's never the end of the story. It would be miserable to be a Ukrainian uh, and. The Russians have employed these tactics they did back in 2014 with, uh, with great tactical effect, but that's not the same thing as storming the gates of Kiev. And as I say, um, when you think about an attack that comes southward from Belarus or something like that, there are real risks for the Russians to take troops away from Belarus at this time to, uh, to attack Ukraine. So... It is sort of at the edge of logical possibility that the nightmare scenario might be the case. It would be a big stretch for the Russians. The Ukrainian army and populace is quite different now than it was in 2014. So just the strict military task of conducting a long distance and supplying armored columns that strike toward Kiev uh, would be a real uh, stretch uh, for the Russian army. We should also remember that the the opportunity cost of Russia becoming again a global power is that they have to retain forces elsewhere. They got a good return on their deployment of forces to Syria, for example. Yeah. But in a military that still got a very small number of high-quality units and a, a lot of conscripts and poorly equipped lower echelon units. Uh, you know, the, again, the number of um, high-value chips that they have to play is is not endless. Two things I want to ask you in this context. On one side, you're saying the Russians are not as to be feared as um, we do, but you have this huge difference in military, in, in just military buildup, 100, 130,000 troops versus whatever the Ukrainians can bring together. So how does that look like in terms of not the worst case scenario, but more likely scenarios like the south of Ukraine. And then the other question is, based on what you just said, Ukrainians are not the same as in 2014. That was an element of surprise. And I think this is a an issue that is really important and needs to be stressed. So the question is then, back in 2014, it was a big surprise. I then was an advisor to the Romanian president, and it wasn't good days. <laughs> um, so if you were now an advisor to the Ukrainian president, how would you assess Ukrainian readiness, military capabilities, and their capacities in different scenarios to defend their own country? Well, um, I would be advising President Zelensky to continue to appeal to get m more firepower from the United States. The real advantage that the Russians have will be in the air, not just with fixed-wing aircraft, but with this uh, missile and rocket artillery that they are so fond of. Doesn't that need missile defense then too? Well, I think a better investment would be for the Ukrainians to acquire enough striking power of their own mm -hmm. to, to deter the Russians. I mean, missile defense is technically a very difficult thing to do, and the this the volume of 
uh, rockets and missiles that the Russians have is huge. But uh, people may also have seen these commercial satellite uh, pictures of big cantonments of Russian armored vehicles just yeah. waiting for the, uh, the roads to freeze over. If you are an American Air Force commander, that looks like a really fat, juicy target to you. So um, the Russians are not invulnerable, and their ability to command and control and maneuver large-scale forces, you know, on a Ukrainian uh, size operation is very, very uncertain. So I think, again, if you were just wanted to get uh, the best return on the military investment, and it's it's notable in particular that the Ukrainians have, have bought uh, or are buying and uh, set to produce drones uh, made by the Turks that have been so uh, decisive, say, in the Armenia-Azerbaijan war. Uh, so the Ukrainians know what they have to do. They've been thinking about this for for some time. Uh, the Ukrainian army is is quite good. I've seen Ukrainian army units uh, involved in American exercises at training centers in Europe, and they get very high marks. Uh, so uh, they they don't have uh, large high power forces either, but a little bit of equipment and a little bit of firepower really go a long way to making Ukraine able to defend itself. So far, alas, we've just been transferring things like short-range anti-tank mm-hmm. rockets, and so, which they will use to maximum effect. But what they really need is some range and some firepower to hold Russian targets at a uh, threat at, at, at some distance. They, the Ukrainians could handle that, and it would really reset the balance would you argue that the ongoing military assistance that is being provided by the United States and other countries is inadequate? Or, to my mind, yeah. What's the sort of degree of magnitude yeah, that, that, it's, would be, that would be right? It's, it's not enough stuff and it's not the right stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, where the Ukrainians are really hurting is that the Russians can just sort of stand back and pummel them from a distance without fearing too much retaliation. So um, if the Ukrainians could hold those uh, Russian artillery units and other things at at risk, it it would raise the cost for the Russians really appreciably um, in a way that that I think would make a big difference in the military balance and really give the Ukrainians an opportunity to defend themselves without relying. Right now, their only hope is that NATO or U.S. forces can rectify that difference. What about drones? You brought that up, and I'm really glad you did. Nagorno-Karabakh II in 2020 was a conflict that we haven't seen in this shape before, where drones on one side had a decisive impact. The same drones were then um, sold by the Turks to the Ukrainians, and when they started using them in the fall, Putin talked about them, and the military buildup started. So how ready are Russians with their drones? And if we're looking at the first time sort of in humanity, a drone-to-drone war, how bloody is that? Well, uh, it wouldn't be a good day to be a drone, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> but one thing that's that was unique about the Nagorno-Karabakh war is that n- neither side had much in the way of air defenses. I mean, people had shoulder-fired, heat-seeking missiles and stuff like that. But the Turkish drones could stand off above that and do their reconnaissance 
bit, uh, which then uh, could be struck by ar artillery. The Russians do have air defenses, but as you point out, this is not a threat that they have really faced directly. It will be a diversion. It will introduce an element of caution in Russian operations, I would think. Um, they're used to being able to dominate the skies and to be able to move unseen yeah. uh, until the last minute. Uh, so that would change. Um, again, what I would worry about is that <laughs> the Ukrainians might be able to say, yep, here come the Russians. The Russians are coming. Uh, but then they don't have the ability to defend themselves until it's a very close-range fight. I mean, it, it looks like um, what, what the Ukrainians need would not amount to a massive investment in terms of military assistance from the West. No, right? no. It's sort of moderate expense. But, but right. in, you know, in the light of the fact that we seem to be sort of unable to even signal that there'll be punishment for Russian actions in other domains, you know, the, the way the SWIFT sanctions have been now taken off the table seemingly and, and there's this constant equivocation on, uh, on, 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 on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, do you think that creates a sort of incentive structure for the Russians to perhaps miscalculate and do something that will be really dangerous for not just the Ukrainians but the world at large? Well, the 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 pipeline issue and allowing them to have access to the international uh, financial institutions and, and structures is a is a an important card that we are not playing. One thing that's been talked about a lot, but again, only sort of in one way traffic is the question of. Uh, I mean, this will be a cyber war of some pretty substantial scope, uh, and of course, the Russians have demonstrated their uh, abilities in this regard. The question is what the United States, what the West, what the Ukrainians themselves are able to do in their defense. I'm sure the Ukrainians have improved their capabilities in this regard. But you have to wonder, too, whether if, if the United States wanted to play a shadow role in the defense of Ukraine, uh, whether there would be you know, computer network attacks or cyber attacks, to use the euphemism. Uh, that the Russians would have to deal with they haven't had to deal with before. And this, again, especially when you're talking about coordinating a large-scale complex military operation, when you lose your communications or your ability to transfer information or you begin to believe that the information you're receiving may not be entirely accurate, that introduces a level of caution verging on panic when it, for senior commanders. And I'll tell you the last thing I would like to be is the Russian general who fails to take Kiev. <laughs> uh, you, know, uh, you know, it may not reach Stalin-esque levels, but uh, I can't imagine that Vladimir Putin will be any more uh, forgiving uh, than uh, Uncle Joe in this regard. Can I just step back a little bit and, and tell our listeners that you are writing a book on um, the British roots of America's <laughs> oh, grand <goodness>. strategy? <laughs> I wonder... Are there any I will lessons? connect that book to this podcast, okay? And I will do three backflips in the... Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, please. One of the things that always... That has been my sort of professional and almost personal passion over the last couple of years is this idea that there are uh, definable strategic cultures that states and nations are possessed with. There was a lot of 
really impenetrable social science literature to this effect in the late Cold War, uh, particularly uh, regarding the Russians. There's been a, a, a renaissance of this discipline when it comes to the Chinese and the Iranians, uh, at least in the West. But we have tended not to look at ourselves through this construct uh, because a we do, we're not very in America. We're not very self-effacing or self-analytical, <laughs> and we also tend to think that everything is new and the world either began in 1619 or 1776, <laughs> uh, depending on uh, you know which side of that divide you're on. But I was really struck in reading backward how much continuity there was from the colonial period to the American experience since then. And one of the key elements uh, of this was an, an appreciation. Obviously, the balance of power in Europe has always been a key. Whether we're worried about the Spanish or the French uh, coming after us or hating on George III and his successors, the perfidious Brits, it has always been a central security interest of us. And what that really comes down to is the balance of power in Central Europe. That has sort of been the cockpit of Western war making for centuries. And, and so I think one of the motivations for me in this podcast is to bring that appreciation back to uh, an American audience, particularly now when we're so focused on the Pacific. We have been focused uh, very intently on the Middle East for the last 15 or 20 years and, and taken the post-Cold War peace in Europe uh, for granted. So now that history has returned to, to Central Europe, I think it's time for us to sort of dust off our, uh, our traditional way of looking, uh, looking at this as soon as we possibly can. It's, I think that's a, that's a great way of connecting the two. I was, I was looking for an even more oblique way. I've, I've, been, I've been reading Aaron Friedberg's Weary Titan, which I don't quite like for a variety of reasons. But, I mean, the idea of the book is that at the moment when the British Empire was at its great, grandest, biggest, it was also fairly vulnerable. And its power was also becoming increasingly source of its various liabilities. And so, so I saw Elbridge Colby tweet the other day uh, that America is, you know, perhaps in a similar situation with a military that is not big enough to increase its commitments to Europe, but also do all the stuff that we want to do in, in Asia. And I think that's that, that's going to be a theme for for the podcast really going forward to sort of grapple with with this question. And and, and maybe if you have a sort of I would like to add with a, with, on an optimistic uh, note <laughs> in this regard. As I, as I've looked at this history. It does seem to go sort of in 75-year cycles. The energy uh, for engagement and for the projection of power and the, uh, the ideological fervor with which it's uh, propounded, uh, it, first of all, it, you know, it uh, does seem to sort of go in the 75 years. So we have been here before. We've been, you know, if, my gosh, if you look back to the 1920s, or, or even the 1820s, there have been periods of, you know, what we would call isolationism, a desire to leave corrupt Europe to itself, not to uh, get entangled in great power conflicts. Um, uh, but we always bounce back from it. And this was true of, uh, of the British Empire uh, as well. 
so I'm hopeful that out of, uh, when confronted with a real danger to political precepts that we hold, that are the glue of our society, again, set aside the political craziness we're, we're currently going through. Uh, our liberal principles have endured a lot over a long period of time, and anybody who wants to write those off uh, is betting against the track record of, of history. So I seriously believe that whatever happens uh, in Ukraine in the next period, that over the long haul, America will again lead the West and that the Eastern Front's uh, will achieve the level of freedom that we hoped for it uh, at the end of the Cold War. But not right now, yeah. You know, the the threats that the Russians pose are grave and immediate, uh, but I wouldn't bet on the Russians over the long haul, nor would I bet on the Chinese. Uh, I, I think our ability, not only internally, but our ability to to rally like-minded people Uh, we have talked on this podcast a lot about the yearning of Eastern Europeans for American leadership. So just because we look feckless at the moment doesn't mean that it'll <laughs> always be that way. That's a very optimistic That's note. That's the best on, yes. for you. <laughs> Giselle, thank you so much. From me, Dalbert Rohaj. Giselle Donnelly. And thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.